0: Loops Computer Setter. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to uh, be hosting the show again. This is the last one. I'm not gonna lie, it's gonna be a tough two hours for me, but we do have a packed two hours for you on the show. Uh, We'll introduce the panel in a second. We'll have Premier John Horgan, Kamloops Emily's Todd Stone, Peter Millibar, BC Liberals leader Andrew Wilkinson, BC Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, and in studio, Trans Mountain President Ian Anderson. And now the panel. Uh, Glad to welcome this morning from Global BC both Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry, from the Vancouver Sun, Vaughn Palmer, and from BC Today, Shannon Waters. Welcome all. Uh, Good to be on, Shane good
2: morning
1: <laughs> yeah thanks guys uh first time with four in the panel i really appreciate all you guys coming on and uh man oh man i'm gonna miss hosting this show and uh it's been it's been a real treat honest to god it's been a real treat i could do a hundred more of these i wish i could but uh big thanks Always to you guys i really really appreciate your work over the years well a pleasure working with show. you okay we got a lot to talk about let's dive into this thing uh zussman you're up first uh, you were in edmonton covering this uh, premier's meeting a uh, western premier's meeting A lonely one for our Premier, Mr. Horgan, going in as the lone NDP Premier, the lone guy who's uh, uh, anti-Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, in the shark pool full of conservative pro-pipeline Premiers. Uh, Was a lot of that kind of hype? I mean, I'm looking at the uh, post-press conference, post-meeting press conference, and it seemed like these guys were kind of congenial and seemed to be getting along fairly well. What was your sense? Yeah, I think a lot
2: of this has been hyped up throughout this entire battle between Alberta and D.C., but it's real. I'm still here in Edmonton where gas is less than a dollar, uh, (laughs) and they remind British Columbians of that often – Uh, I think they're still here, especially from Albertans' frustration over the fact the pipeline hasn't been built. They're not really sure who to direct that frustration towards. Is it Ottawa? Is it B.C.? But there is a growing sense of sort of anger as people stay out of work longer and they feel like their economy is going down. In terms of the political aspects of it, yeah, there was a happy face from all of them, but there was a lot of rhetoric there as well. Premier Jason Kenney is not backing down from his threats against British Columbia. He says he's working on a whole new suite of things. If he believes BC steps out of line here and does something that's against the Constitution to block the pipeline, he says Alberta has a whole host of other things it's willing to dispatch. One of those he alluded to is tourism, you know, suggesting to Albertans, don't go to British Columbia you're standing in the way of the pipeline. As Premier, you mentioned being the one NDP Premier there. he took lots of opportunities to remind everyone of that, mentioning his blue suit so he could fit in. I joked with him there probably wasn't an orange suit that would fit him. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things where he's sort of used to it at this point, uh, that he's going to be the odd man out uh, in these meetings, and he keeps standing up for BC, as he says.
1: Yeah. Uh, Keith, uh, in that post-press uh, conference, Jason Kenney notably referring to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, reference case uh, by the NDP government here in BC, saying it's futile. Uh John John Horgan and the other said, listen, we're going to go before a whole new set of judges. they got a whole new mindset. Uh, you know, we really hope to win. We're optimistic, that kind of thing. Uh, which of those two premiers is closer to the mark?
3: Well, the BC Court of Appeal doesn't have the greatest track record uh, in pres- in its cases being upheld by Supreme Court of Canada. Most notably, the teachers' dispute if you recall, uh, the Court of Appeal sided with the government against the BCTF. Supreme Court of Canada took 20 minutes to say you guys are totally out to lunch here, and they sided with uh, with the union. So, but having said that, I think most legal observers say, say, think it's still a long shot for the BC government to win this thing. It would turn constitutional law on its head. Supreme Courts don't like to do that, so I don't think that's going to succeed. Having said that, I think. Uh Horgan's got a pretty good shot at uh, winning his own his other case, which is uh, seeking an injunction against the turn off the taps uh, law. Now that it's been proclaimed into law, he'll be his government will be in a Calgary courtroom on Friday. I think I like his chances there much more than I do in front of the nine in uh, in Ottawa uh, at the Supreme Court level. But uh, and back to you know your original point, there's a lot of hype, a lot of rhetoric flowing around this. The realities of government of governing set in very quickly for both Horgan and Kenny. Horgan very quickly realizing he, couldn't, he had nothing to, no legal way to stop the pipeline despite the rhetoric before the campaign. And Kenny's going to discover now that he's premier that it's one thing to be on the campaign trails, another thing to be in the premier's office actually enacting legislation and policy and having to work with other governments. And that's why I think you're seeing more rhetoric than you are action.
1: Yeah, and speaking of that, Vaughn, uh, to Keith's point, uh, not one, not two, but now three court challenges against that turn-off-the-taps legislation. I'm reminded what Rachel not least said uh, when Jason Kenney passed it into law, saying he really messed up uh, the idea of it in her mind was you hold it in reserve, pass it into law and enact it in one fell swoop and then get it going before uh, the likely court challenge but uh, three court bids, what do you make of it? Yeah,
4: yeah. So they, they lost the first one because they were premature, the, the BC uh, court action, they lost that one because it was premature, the law hadn't been proclaimed. Now it's been proclaimed and they're in court in Calgary today uh, Alberta Superior Court arguing, uh, okay now it's proclaimed so now you can give an injunction but I have to say, They're thinking they might lose that one as well because just in case they've filed a third court action here in Vancouver... Uh, In federal court, in case they lose again in Alberta. So, uh, man, oh, man, this government isn't hesitant about creating work for lawyers. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I wonder if their legal advice isn't that uh, maybe they're going to get thrown out as premature in Alberta again. The Alberta government is arguing that the case is still premature because, yes, the law is the law that hasn't been used for anything yet. And B.C. is assuming a whole bunch of things about how the law might be used, But nobody's used it for anything yet. So um, anyway, but I, I do think that's essentially Horgan's position, right, is that he lets his lawsuits speak for his government's position on this. He did make a point in Alberta. Uh, of saying, um, look, we're still approving all the permits that come along for construction. Ottawa, we accept, has the jurisdiction to build the pipeline. Uh, So, you know, he is trying to even remind Albertans that it's not as much obstruction out here as the Alberta government lets on.
1: Yeah, and Shannon to to Vaughn's point on the permits, that's a that's a frequent line. I remember back in the campaign, John Horgan uh, threatened to use the permits thing as a tool in the two ball, a toolbox. Quickly learned that was a no go, and in since has been uh, mm-hmm. repeating, "Ad no, no, we we are issuing permits. We're doing it. We're timely. We're on, we're yeah. not holding anything back." And uh, every time I hear that, and I'm reminded of George Heyman's comments where he said, well, we're issuing every permit we're legally obligated to. And part of me thought, you know, that as soon as he said that, I kind of in my mind's eye pictured a room full of staff going over permits with a microscope to try and find any way to kind of say, nope, that's not legal.
5: Well, I mean, I guess that's possible if BC is looking, you know, to explore the possibilities for not having this project go forward. But, you know, as Vaughn said, Horgan has been very explicit about, you know, we are not, um, we are not flouting the rule of law when it comes to this project. We are complying where we are required to, but we are also taking to the courts to, voice our concerns our opposition to these various aspects of the project or to the way alberta plans to handle handle its um oil exports and you know we are exercising the options that are available to us while you know sort of staying within the lines which i think is sort of the line that the NDP government finds itself walking now where they've said that they oppose this project, the whole every tool in the toolbox line to stop it. But they're also, you know, like conscious of not sort of making the other provinces too angry where possible. Um, and while saying they're standing up for British Columbia's interests, I'm very curious to see where, Um, this challenge to Alberta's turn off the taps laws goes. Um, It's been very interesting to watch things from my colleague in Edmonton's perspective. And I just want to say that the, the court cases have produced what I think is my favorite quote from our attorney general, David Eby ever, where when the Alberta court threw out BC's first case and we asked him for a reaction, he said, why should we have to wait for them to punch us in the face before we can argue that they shouldn't be allowed to punch us in the face? <laughs> Which is essentially BC's argument about this court case. They're planning to hurt us with it. We need to be able to argue that they shouldn't be able to do that before they actually go ahead and try and hurt us with yeah. it. So yeah, i yeah, remind
4: Sorry, Shannon, go ahead, I'll go remind ahead. listeners that the uh, the Alberta Attorney uh, Energy Minister is named Sonia Savage, and she may yeah. yet turn out to be a savage from BC's
1: <laughs> point of view. Uh, Richard, <laughs> on the Premier's meeting, one thing that came out was these uh, these economic um, corridors, uh, this sort of uh, pro-Western economic unity working together. Uh, must have been an interesting discussion on how to work together economically while dancing around the pipeline issue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I had a look at the agenda before the meeting. It was jam-packed, Shane. They were running late all day, and every uh, province and territory had issues that they wanted to discuss around making Western Canada the dominating driving force in the economy in Canada. But yeah, the pipeline, you know, figuratively, literally stands in the middle of all of this, right? It is... The eminent project in terms of resource development going on uh, in Western Canada right now, there's a clear political feud with premiers on each side of it. So I think unlike a year ago when Alberta would not sign off on the joint statement at the end of the Western premiers because of the spat, this time... The premier's at least acknowledged we need to sign off on something. We need to have something for the first minister's meeting in a few weeks. So let's agree to disagree on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We will continue to make our arguments in the public and to each other but for now, let's just focus on these other issues. So, yeah. you know, climate change as well as the Western Corridor, like you mentioned,
3: mental health and addictions. Well,
2: but that is very separate and, and hard to separate, as you mentioned, from the trans Pipeline. Yeah. You, know,
3: you know, I, and I covered the my first Western freemories I ever covered was in 1987. They issued a communique then. At that conference, pledging to end interprovincial trade barriers, to work together in joint economic cooperation against uh, some of the federal government initiatives, nothing's changed really on that front. Western premiers, I think, um, it, t- it takes on a sort of a, 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 a sort of an image I think that is disproportionate to the reality. It doesn't actually lead to a lot of stuff. Uh, They make these provinces every year pledge to work together, and then they proceed to work on their own. The one thing that's different this time is not so much the Western Premier's Conference, it's the Western Premiers that are so disparate. Mm, You've got the three Conservatives now threatening, you know, talking about separatism, talking about constitutionality of taxation. That's never happened before. And as you mentioned off the top, John Horgan's an outlier here. He's one of the only friends the Trudeau government has in the entire country, and that's what makes it so interest in the political dynamism of Western Premiers, not so much the conferences where they meet, it's their actions individually or together with e- with each other in terms of those three across the prairies. It's going to be fascinating to, to watch as it unfolds over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, a, lo- a lot of drama around the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Vaughn, but uh, at the end of the day it boils down to a simple question. Uh, at this point, do you think it can be stopped?
4: Uh, the Pipeline? Uh, no, I don't, actually. Uh, I mean, it's going to be tough. Uh, I, think that I, I don't think... Future court action is going to succeed because I think, you know, I think the federal government made a pretty good case that they met the test set by the Federal Court of Appeal. The Federal Court of Appeal said Ottawa got a lot done right, there were a few things they needed to fix, and I think the feds fixed it. So I think the court challenges uh, at this point the chance of a court injunction or a court challenge to stop it. The question is still the protests and to what degree can protest actively stop it. I was struck by uh, Ian Anderson, Trans Mountain. Uh, I cynically thought that they were going to, you know, start construction in some remote part of British Columbia or Alberta. He says, no, uh, when construction starts, one of the places they're going to start work is in Burnaby. So there will be a showdown. uh, There will be arrests. uh, But... Uh, the Premier of BC, one of the things Horgan has said is we are going to be governed by the rule of law. I don't think there will be any provincial government sympathy at all for law breaking on the protests. So people will get dragged away, they'll get arrested, they'll get tossed in the clink, there'll be injunctions, but I don't think they can stop the pipeline.
1: Final word to you, Shannon. <laughs> we talk a lot about oil pipelines, Trans Mountain in particular. Uh, when you talk about economic opportunities in the West, LNG is certainly one of them. LNG requires pipelines. We don't hear a lot about that from this government. <laughs>
5: No, and we're still looking, the last time I checked, the Coastal Gas Link Project, which has been opposed by some members of the Wet'suwet'en Nation in sort of um, central-ish BC. um, They're still looking at whether or not an injunction that was obtained by the company against people who were trying to block construction and preparation activities up there whether that injunction will continue to stand um and members of the witsuitans hereditary um chiefs have said there's no jurisdiction here for crossing our traditional territories and our elected leaders don't have the ability to sort of grant that consent so even on the lng side we are looking at legal battles here in bc even though the province has said you know we we back this we want lng to go forward so it's going to be an interesting next few years i mean i've i've been covering bc poly now for about two years and it's been a very interesting few years with as you said, a lot of talk about yeah. quite a few different types of pipelines and I don't think that is a subject that we're going to stop talking about anytime
1: soon. Absolutely. And by the way, some breaking news from Ontario. Ontario's top court has ruled the federal carbon tax is constitutional. Ontario now joins Saskatchewan in losing on that front, probably going to the Supreme Court as well. Let's take a quick break. We'll yeah. come back and talk forestry woes with the panel right after this.
0: Radio NL. Radio NL.com. Local news now to you. For Camloops Computer Centre, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
1: Good morning. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Richard Zussman, Von Palmer and Shannon Waters. Uh, more bad news for forestry. Man, it has been a just a brutal few weeks. Keith, uh, I talked to Bob Simpson, uh, former independent MLA, now mayor of Quesnel, and he was telling me while well, he's done some work transitioning his community to prepare for what's happening in the sawmill front, uh, he just told me two weeks ago his real big concern is if it overflows to the pulp mill front, and then he could be in real big trouble. Yeah, we've had some activity on that, and then yesterday, can fork curtails yeah. two pulp mills in Prince George. Uh, are your alarm level on this? Oh, yeah. No,
3: this is a a crisis. Uh, And there's really not a lot of, there's no easy answer here. There's no quick fix here. Uh, This has been years in the making. Uh, I think a lot of people in the industry, certainly that I've been talking to, have been tracking this for some time. They knew this was coming. Uh, There's a lack of fiber supply, which is at the heart of this. And without any wood to process, or with less and less wood to process, there's less and less economic activity, and and these mills become unprofitable. So there is going to be uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 sawmill closures. We don't. I haven't seen an estimate of how many pulp mills are going to be affected by this. But as you mentioned, Canfor yesterday announcing the, the curtailment temporarily of two operations, two mills, two pulp mills in Prince George. That's just the start of what's to come. And again, despite what the, liber- the liberal opposition really hasn't offered much in the way of uh, solutions here, uh, so in terms of going after the NDP, uh, a lot of this was on the uh, B.C. liberals' watch. And for them now to say, well, you know, the Oregon government should uh, should reduce stumpage, uh, this type of thing, all that does is play into the U.S. softwood lumber interest to say, aha, there is a subsidy for you, yeah. and just strengthens the American hand. So the, the softwood dispute sort of paralyzes, I think, the NDP government in terms of, of creative solutions here. Maybe there's a transitional fund for workers uh, rather than any money that goes directly to the companies. I don't think you can make an argument that can for one of the biggest companies in BC, which made a half billion dollars in profit last year, even though it's probably going to lose in the neighborhood of $200 million this year, that does not qualify for a taxpayer bailout. And I don't think you're going to see that from the Horgan government. I think they're just going to have to sit by and watch this so-called rationalization of mill closures take place and maybe come up with a with a temporary uh, sort of a, a employee um, laid off employee sort of transfer allowance. Um, perhaps that comes into play. We saw that in the '90s under the NDP government. But short of that, I don't see much for the government to do here.
1: Yeah, Shannon. I mean, to Keith's point, we talked last week about Carol James for to close the door on any new pot of funding. But then again, you have these mill closures, these curtailments, all this bad news, and communities literally reeling. Uh, does the province, you know, how much patience can they have before they're forced to do something, just out of sheer <laughs> optics?
5: Yeah, especially if the pressure keeps building and we get more announcements down the line of workers who are going to see, you know, their hours cut or the the place where they work shut down. I think that pressure is likely to climb. BC has said, you know, we're going to Ottawa, we're asking for help from Ottawa on this. Um, But if the federal government is slow to move, I do think at some point that the province will sort of have to look seriously at, you know, how can we help people? Um, Sort of to what Keith was talking about I do think and and I believe we're seeing some indications that the province is looking to sort of pivot the way our forestry industry works right now to sort of the the new reality if you will the premier has said you know we have to stop chasing volume and start chasing value we're never going to have a fiber supply that is as robust as we've seen in the past and he's talked about, you know, frequently the devastation from the mountain pine beetle and our last two wildfire seasons, still yeah. waiting to see what this season is going to yield. Yeah. Um, we're, it's a bad situation. It's a dire situation. And it's not likely to improve anytime soon, unfortunately.
1: Vaughn, uh, a lot of this, almost all of it, in fact, has taken place in, in rural British Columbia. Uh, and then, largely in writings held by B.C. Liberals. This isn't an economic sideswipe to a Metro Vancouver or, or a Southern Vancouver Island, at least not an immediate upfront one. Does that play into all this or no?
4: Yeah, I think it is a factor. Look, I, I did a piece in the sun today, and I just I was struck reading over the list of closures, and some of them are permanent, some of them are t- most of them are temporary, but some of them are quite long, two months shut down. is a, a lot of paychecks. Uh, so I, I just sort of put the names in the column today and added them all up. So there's 30 B.C. communities that have been hit by permanent, as I say, mostly temporary closures, uh, 30 or so mills to one degree or another. And uh, I had just filed that piece to the Sun last evening when we got the Canfor announcement, two more pulp mills. So they're mostly sawmills, but the pulp mill in Taylor is down for five weeks, and the two pulp mills in Prince George are down for the whole summer. So that's a lot of jobs, a lot of paychecks, and it adds up, but there's no getting away from the politics of it. Most of those mills are in communities represented in the legislature by the bc liberals there are a few exceptions uh... But not very many and i do think it, it results in a political impact you know when the new democrats were in opposition they used to represent a lot of forest communities and they were very good at bringing this issue forward and berating the government for not doing enough uh, NDP MLA's going back to their ridings this summer are mostly going to Metro Vancouver ridings, ridings on Vancouver Island that have not seen the mill go down because they don't have very many mills left. And I don't think there's going to be as much lobbying on the cabinet to do something. The urgency that is there when you have a member in the local community dealing with the mill shut down, maybe permanently, and a couple hundred jobs gone, isn't there when you've got a largely Vancouver Island and urban Vancouver-centered government, and I think one of the reasons the cabinet is in no rush to do anything here is because they aren't getting the kind of pressure they would if they represented those communities.
1: Last word to you, Richard. I mean, in all of this, uh, they're overhauling the forest industry. Uh, I know the premier once said, Shannon mentioned more value added fiber product. With all this stuff and all this bad news, how much pressure does it put on both the timeline uh, to get all this done and, of course, to table something that works? <coughs> Yeah, and I think
2: timeline will also be amplified if there are fires this summer, as Shannon alluded to. So if we see massive fires again and more destruction of our forests, then that will increase the pressure. You know, to the point that Vaughn was making around sitting around the cabinet table, you feel that here in Edmonton on the pipeline issue. When you have to look these people face-to-face and see the challenges they'll have to afford rent, and afford groceries. It makes a profound difference on you. I would expect Premier Horgan will spend some time next month visiting those communities to send a message that I'm with you and we're trying to make things work. Keith makes a great point as well around some potential checks for people who have been put out of work. Maybe they fast track the retraining, but obviously getting people trained up for another job Mm -hmm. takes a lot of time. So I think there needs to be a bit of a press here from this government at least to get to those communities and have their faces shown to say you know we care and we're listening or trying to fix this
1: absolutely okay guys let's get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour we'll talk cannabis teacher negotiations and a whole bunch more right after this
0: local news now radio nl six ten a.m and radio nl.com Loops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Welcome back to the special two-hour Inside Politics. We're talking to Richard Zussman, Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Guys, a really interesting story, I think, is forming up around uh, this legal cannabis industry. Um, And it was highlighted by our colleague, Rob Shaw, or at least an aspect of the problem, uh, in this battle in Cowichan between the First Nation there and the government. Uh, Both want this prime spot in in a local mall. Both are competing for it, and the First Nation uh, feels that it's getting a raw end of the deal. Now, I know Mike Farnworth has opened the idea of abandoning the government store, but I think it underscores uh, an important problem here that the province is not only issuing licenses and not doing it very quickly, but they're also competing for those licenses. Shannon?
5: Yeah, it's um, we're in a very interesting position in B.C. right now when it comes to cannabis. I actually spoke to the finance minister yesterday after looking at Statistics Canada's reporting of cannabis sales in the provinces. Um, and B.C. has had sort of the lowest sales revenues of any province except for Prince Edward Island, which I think would come as a shock to a lot of people. And and even the finance minister admitted like a lot of people were probably expecting BC to be at the top of the leaderboard when it came to cannabis revenues. At the same time, we have yet to even crack $3 million in sales in a month, whereas some of the other provinces, including Alberta, who's sort of our closest counterpart, are selling in the range of like 10 to 14 million in a month. Um, And I think this issue around licensing and around opening stores is really a key part of that because we haven't seen a lot of retail operations, whether run by the government or run by private companies, um, show up yet. And actually, I was looking at the list of government stores and three of them are located in Kamloops. There are 14 (laughs) in total operating in the province most of them in the interior and the north, but three of those stores are in Kamloops, which I found kind of surprising. So I think something is is going to have to change soon. I think the frustration is building both among people who want to be operating these stores and First Nations who want to be operating these stores and by British Columbians who are kind of told, you know, cannabis will be legalized and you will be able to buy it in a physical building near you and now they don't they're not seeing that as a reality.
1: Yeah, we're starting to call uh, we're starting to call this town Camsterdam, by the way. Um, <laughs> provincial approvals for cannabis licenses, as I mentioned, slow, like unbelievably yeah. slow. Uh yeah. th- the goal here, which we keep hearing over and over, is well we want to make sure that organized crime doesn't get into the industry. But we're seeing more and more now legit businesses that are paying out the nose, sitting on leases for months and months and months. Uh, Vaughn, big problem? Oh, it's a huge uh, the the one that you
4: mentioned though was Shaw is kind of interesting because the first nation uh, Rob talked to them, and uh, they got attention and they got immediate attention from the provincial government which went oh no no you know we're not holding back on them because we want our own store in there Uh, they can go ahead so I mean I assume it's uh, Kamloops has so many stores because the city of uh, Kamloops jumped on the applications and got them through because you need local approval but the other thing you know what I'm guessing an awful lot of British Columbians are buying from their old dealers yeah, uh, and from the illicit market that's been here for years. I mean, we've been hearing about B.C. bud being the number one agricultural crop in the province for years even though it wasn't legal I have to assume that the real problem the government has here is uh, why the hell would you go to a government store when, when your local dealer has been serving you quite well for a long long time and the prices are great and you don't have to pay the tax
1: Yeah, yeah even cheaper B- Betty and Souk is still doing good Betty <laughs> <from Souk. laughs> but here's here's another aspect and I talked about these, the legitimate business owners who are, are paying for leases and all this stuff and still waiting for approval for example in Kamloops we have 17 cannabis stores approved. How many are open? Two. Uh, and some of those stores have been waiting literally upwards of six, seven, eight months. And I talked to uh, one prominent member of the community here who didn't want to go on record, and his concern was if he goes on record and complains, and he's mad because he's approaching a financially untenable situation, that he if he becomes a squeaky wheel, somebody in the province is going to sideline his application, which highlights a concern here, Richard.
2: Yeah, it's always a concern when you complain about these things. We saw it in the boom of the craft beer industry as well in Vancouver. I did a number of stories back then when they were having all sorts of problems getting approvals both from the municipality and the provincial government and were always worried about speaking out about it because they were concerned it would mean more delays, mean their applications would be rejected. It is a legitimate concern. There are also a lot of layers here, right? Municipal consultation, public consultation, and then I think the big factor is one Vaughn alluded to. People in BC can get their product many other places now, not just from their dealers, but also from dispensaries, which are in Metro Vancouver, still in Victoria, still operating. So there isn't that sort of pressure to get these locations open, I think. And that is why, and my Farnworth, the public safety minister, has long said, we're going to take our time on this, and it's going to take two or three years to get to the point where this industry is actually really operating at a point where it should be.
1: All right. Uh, Keith, at the end of all this, we have municipalities who want a revenue-sharing deal. We have underwhelming revenues. We have a province that's moving unbelievably slow. We have businesses, people on Mm -hmm. on the brink. I mean, we have more pot stores in Calgary than we have in the entirety of B.C. So is the Mm -hmm. province, at the end of the day, in a way, punching itself in the face here?
3: Well, I don't think the province uh, really expected to make a lot of money out of this to begin with. This Remember, cannabis legalization was thrust upon the provinces, was dumped on them by Ottawa. This is not something the NDP even talked about, uh, nor do the B.C. Liberals in that election campaign. It just is not it was never on the radar in terms of provincial responsibility. So Richard's right. Mike Farmer's been clear from the get-go. This is going to take a long time to roll out, and if people don't like it, so be it. Uh, I think the, the NDP is is gambling here that there are far bigger issues out there for the, that people expect the government to solve or take action on. Uh, other than cannabis legalization, getting cannabis stores open. I don't think, uh, you know, it's a minority uh, number of people who are really adamantly interested in this uh, particular issue. I think other issues are are much more higher up on the priority scale for the NDP government than dealing with cannabis legalization. Again, I go back to Barnworth's point from from day one. This is going to take a long time to roll out. They're in no hurry to take aggressive steps here. They've got far more pressing issues on their plate than this particular one, which is I don't think you're going to see a radical change in, in stores opening uh, in the short term.
1: All right. We only got a couple of minutes left. i to do a quick around the horn and just toss uh, an issue at each of you. Starting with you, Vaughn, uh, the BCUC inquiring into high gas prices. Uh, we're starting to see the first few steps or first few goalposts coming up. Uh, how's it shaping and how do you, how do you, uh, are you getting a vague sense of what this thing might kind of result in yet or not?
4: Well, it's a rush job. Uh, The government's given them very little time. We're getting not real public hearings next month, but what are called workshops where essentially uh, some industry reps will be in and they'll ask them some questions. There's a couple of critics that will be asked questions, too. Uh, But look, they're on a very short leash from the government. They can't even look at taxes and regulation. Uh, The industry is cooperating, but we've had a bunch of these inquiries in B.C. in the past, and they tend to come out and say, well, look, there are a lot of factors and it's complicated and the market market as a factor and all that. I wouldn't expect too much out of them. Uh, you know, at the end of uh, August, August the 30th, uh, the annual spike in gas prices will have passed, and we'll move on to other topics.
1: Keith, on the education front, uh, they're going into mediation. Talks scheduled now through until August after hitting an impasse in class size and composition. Uh, does the introduction of a mediator help things out in your mind here or no? certainly
3: doesn't hurt. I mean, uh, they, the, the TF always needs help from an outside body to achieve some sort of deal at the table. Vince Reddy was there before, working his miracles. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets involved at the latter stages of these talks. So, uh, they've got a mediator. That's that's good. If they listen to the mediator, I think some, some progress can be made here. Having said that, I'd be surprised if there's a deal before the end of summer. But, you know, the TF has signaled that it's, it, it realizes its leadership has sort of telegraphed. It knows its membership does not want to go on strike. And that has been picked up by the employer, by the NDP. They know the teachers don't want to lock the picket line. That gives the government a bit of leverage here. And I think they're going to exploit that to exact some change in contract language, uh, not huge, but some change to give more flexibility to the employer. And the TFs going to have to settle for a two, two, and two uh, wage increase like everybody else. Albeit, there can be some creativity there. Maybe some special funds are created to sort of alleviate some of the some of the cost pressures that teachers face in their classroom
1: on a daily basis. Richard, to you, the employer health tax is getting some blame here uh, for cuts at Victoria Police Department. Is, is that fair, or is that a city hall issue? I think
2: it's fair, and I think there's going to be way more issues beyond just this. Local businesses, municipalities, uh, universities will all be impacted by the employer's health tax. I think we really need to watch those small businesses that will soon have to either consolidate or lay off staff staff. Because of the double dipping this year as those bills come in. Maybe short term, considering the MSP is gone next year, but this tax could have a lingering effect on these businesses. And it's obviously one of the big, big political issues to keep watching.
1: And final one to you, Shannon. Daylight savings time, the province has launched a survey. <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody has a take on this issue. Uh, do, you, do you think it's coming it's anytime in the campaign. soon? Yeah, is it coming anytime soon?
5: Well, it kind of sounds like the premier would like it to. Um, He is very willing to talk about this issue at sort of the drop of a hat. Um, Richard has obviously been enjoying this survey launching. He was giving, um, I often call uh, Horgan premier dad because of his propensity for dad jokes, and Richard was out there out dadding the premier with um, daylight savings time pun. Um, I've seen a lot of people sharing this survey on social media and encouraging encouraging others to weigh in on it. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did get quite a robust public engagement, I mean, relatively speaking, anyway. But I think it will be interesting to see where this goes, given what's been happening in the States and the way Oregon has said, you know, it makes sense for us to align ourselves with our trading partners on the West Coast here.
3: Absolutely. Richard, it's happening. let that survey 11 times. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I have. And I know you and I are on the same page on this, Shane. The kids don't know you have to change
4: the clocks twice a year. Bad news That's right. to my friend. Hey, That's Shane. Clocks yeah. twice a year Shane. in Denmark. one. Shane, what time is it in Copenhagen? That's what I want to yeah. know. Nine,
1: <laughs> it's nine hours ahead. James,
4: we're gonna miss you man we're yeah, really gonna, gonna
1: miss you, you. Yeah, we're gonna come visit yeah uh, yeah guys it's been it's been a real pleasure um, I don't I wish right, I could right. I wish I could keep doing the show for years and years and years and I love I love you guys and I love that the fact that you've, you've put in all your time and effort and not just you I mean Michael Smith's been on the show Rob Shaw uh, binder Sajan uh, so many others who have come in and, and put in their time people love the show I get more feedback on this show by far by email Twitter or by uh, meeting people <laughs> than anything else and uh, it's sad me greatly not to have to do it again. I, I'm, I'm going oh, we'll to miss you. Right. You've, done, you've done a great service. Okay, guys, we well, appreciate it, and yep. uh, the door is always open. Please come visit. <laughs> we'll carry when we come. Thanks, Shane. Yeah, all right, best of go. luck, Shannon Waters, Richard Zussman, Keith Baldry, and Von Palmer. And we'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics. Peter Milibar, Todd Stone, next.
0: Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL.
1: Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined uh, by two Kamloops MLAs. Uh, in studio with me is Kamloops North MLA Peter Millibar. Uh, joining us on the phone is Camloops South MLA Todd Stone. Welcome both. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Shane. Alright, so who do we start with? Let's see, Todd, let's start with you. Uh, I, I've, I really think this cannabis issue is going to be a big story and uh, as I mentioned to the panel, I talked to a prominent member of this community, a uh, legitimate business person who has been sitting on a lease for almost eight months now, paying out uh, a lot of money, uh, who's now tiptoeing into um, a fiscally uncertain position and still no provincial approvals. Uh, what are you hearing and how concerned are you about how the province is handling the cannabis license thing?
6: Well, I'm hearing exactly the same thing, Shane. We're probably talking to the same folks. Uh, there are, are a number of private uh, business owners in Kamloops who, in good faith, uh, entered uh, the application process for uh, all the necessary uh, approvals in order to sell uh, a cannabis uh, in a private store in Kamloops. And uh, in some cases, yeah, you're right, it's been six uh, eight. I know of one fellow, it's uh, almost uh, 10 months. Uh, and... Uh, these are these are folks who have actually taken on the cost of uh, of leasing space uh, and doing some leasehold improvements, those kinds of things. Uh, they're, they're bleeding a lot of cash right now uh, because the government's taking so long on their approvals. And it doesn't need to be this way. Uh, other provinces uh, have uh, have fast tracked uh, their approvals and, and have managed to open uh, lots of stores in a short period of time. Uh, and, and here in British Columbia, uh, you know, the government didn't didn't waste any time uh, opening up its, its government store uh, in Kamloops. Uh, and others around the province. Uh, so one has to, uh, you know, cynically wonder if uh, the, the the real motivation here on the part of uh, John Horgan is is to uh, really drag his heels on the private side of the equation to give uh, public, uh, you know, government-owned stores uh, a, a very significant advantage uh, in in loc- locating uh, sites and setting up the the government stores around the province. If that's the case, that's that's terribly, terribly unfair. Yeah, uh, and it's causing significant financial hardship for a number of uh, private operators
1: around the province, including in Kamloops. Well, the premier's on uh, right after you guys, so I'll we'll definitely be tossing that at him. Uh, Peter, uh, obviously, an unbelievably condensed uh, couple weeks of bad news on the forestry side, including several communities in your riding. Um, now we're seeing pulp mills being affected. When you consider what Vaven Clearwater is going through, and now we're seeing uh, bad news start to not on the sawmill side, but on the pulp mill side. Uh, what's your concern level, and what do you want the province to do here?
7: Well, it's a huge concern level, and, and frankly what we need the province to do at a minimum is actually have a forest minister that uh, people can see and actually talk to. Uh, I, I penned a letter to the, the premier yesterday, pointing out that Minister Donaldson—it's been almost three weeks now since the Vavenby announcement—has yeah. not contacted or talked to the chief of the Simp Nation. Uh, she's been very clear; she wants to have a discussion with the minister before she starts having discussions with Interfor about the tenure transfer and sale. Um, that impacts everyone in that valley. Yeah, uh, you know, it took him to almost two and a half days to reach out to the mayor of Clearwater, but at least he did. Uh, why he won't uh, talk to an elected chief um, is stalling everything. The clock is ticking on this tenure transfer and sale, and um, and the sim want to be at the table and they and they have uh, a duty to consult. Everyone acknowledges that it's in the minister's mandate letter, and uh, the fact that the minister is so MIA on this file uh, across the province um, is is really troubling. I think back to other crises we've had in, in forestry or other industries. Um, I can't remember a time where a minister has been so invisible uh, in the midst of something like this.
1: Yeah, Todd. I mean, we got Domtar here in Kamloops. I mean, I, we obviously haven't heard any bad news there. Hopefully, we won't. But uh, as we see the ripple effect in the forestry side, uh, what, you, what is your concern level?
6: Well, uh, you, just yesterday, uh, two pulp mills in Prince George announced uh, that they are um, uh, they're they're cutting back on shifts and and, uh, and going on uh, temporary. Uh, Curtailment, And that's a 1,000 jobs in Prince George. If you add up all the jobs in Williams Lake, uh, you're talking about 3,500 uh, workers who are, uh, have either lost their jobs uh, permanently or are on ex- uh, extended curtailment. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, this is having a ripple effect right, right across the entire province. Uh, Pete uh, and I met with uh, the folks at uh, Interfor uh, the other day. Uh, Pete's been in touch with... Uh, you know, mill operators up uh, up up the North Thompson. Uh, we are, are going to be having some conversations with Domtar just to make sure that we're staying on t- in touch with everybody and understanding, you know, what uh, what what uh, these different companies are thinking. And uh, but it, it's very uh, it, it's very uncertain uh, is probably the the, the 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 most important word I think we could use to describe the situation. And you know, in addition to the force minister being missing in action, uh, where is the premier? Uh, why has the premier not bothered to venture outside of the Lower Mainland? Uh, amidst this uh, this forestry uh, crisis, uh, it's time for the Premier to show some leadership and show up in Vavenby and uh, Clearwater, uh, Williams Lake and, and other communities that have been directly impacted by uh, what is uh, rapidly evolving into a, a, course, uh, a crisis in our forestry sector.
1: Uh, Trans Mountain, first to you Pete. Uh, obviously we got the second federal approval. Trans Mountain looks like it's gung ho on construction. Uh, okay, yay. Uh, but obviously we're going to still have protests. We still have lots of court action. Uh, in your mind, is there any concern at all that there's an avenue here to stop the pipeline or no?
7: No, I don't think so. I, I think um, especially when you when you look at Justice uh, uh sign off on, on the latest consultations, uh, uh, obviously a, a very well respected uh, jurists in our country uh, saying, "Yeah, it looks like everything's been followed the way the the Supreme Court wanted it to be followed." Um, you know, I, I don't think other than um, making noise in courts and, and tying up uh, resources, uh, you'll see success. And that's why, frankly, the province should probably drop their their uh, cases within uh, Alberta. And it's disconcerting to hear the premier say that the province still may may sign on to other future actions uh, yeah. within BC as well. Um, you know the protests are a bit of a concern. Hopefully, people protest peacefully and and uh, don't put themselves or or workers in in risk and in jeopardy. Um, and and uh, I think over time, as uh, as most things, um, you know, as as construction continues on, typically what happens is uh, protesters at a certain point will hit a tipping point of of probably saying, okay, this is a done deal. It's actually happening, and and then yeah. they'll move on. But it will be. Uh, uncertain for a while and as I say I think everyone just hopes that people will will protest outside of the bubble zones and, and make sure that they're not uh, getting in the way of big heavy equipment and, and putting workers at risk or protesters themselves at risk.
1: We've got about a minute left here Todd but uh, on this pipeline thing uh, we've got the Supreme Court, we've got the First Nations challenges, that kind of thing uh, and of course you got oil by rail moving through both your and Pete's riding and alongside some major rivers. Um, how important is it A to get the pipeline done and how concerned are you that there may be roadblocks yet?
6: Well, it's it's critical to get this pipeline project done. It's been studied to death uh, a massive amount of consultations and engagements. Don't forget that uh, the vast majority of uh, First Nations up and down the pipeline uh, are actually in full support of it and want to see it happen. you know, there, in fact, there's 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 several consortiums or groups of uh, First Nations leaders that have come together that want to buy, uh, buy you know, a, the entire pipeline or at least a, a stake in it. Uh, so that's uh, that's important. I think also in the context of of what's happening in our force sector at the moment, uh, uh, you know, it's time for John Horgan to, uh, to 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 end his obstruction on this pipeline and recognize that uh, this the, the construction of this pipeline actually represents uh, some opportunities for employment. Uh, in the short and midterm, and in a lot of the communities that have been impacted uh, with, with with the downturn in the force sector. So, uh, you know, John Horgan's got to stop wasting taxpayers' dollars with these frivolous lawsuits. Uh, he will lose again uh, if he does proceed uh, with his you know, final action to the Supreme Court. Uh, hopefully he won't do that. Uh, we need this pipeline. We need the jobs. So let's embrace the economic opportunity and get on with it.
1: All right, Todd, Peter, uh, thanks so much for always being on the other end of the phone and uh, for a very good relationship over the years. I've really appreciated it on my side, and uh, I'm sorry it's got to end so soon. It wasn't my initial plan, but uh, sometimes life throws things at you. Well, thank you, Shane, yeah. and I, I look forward to hearing a podcast from Denmark uh,
7: <laughs> with a new vision of uh, our view of how things are unfolding in B.C. Yeah, I all going to be pro-rep all yeah. the time.
6: <laughs> yeah, uh, Shane, uh, I, I've uh, very much appreciated your, your curiosity, your fairness, uh, uh, your passion for B.C. politics, and, and most of all, your, your, your great sense of humor. So all the best uh, to you and your family and your, your adventure, and uh, we know we're going to see you back in B.C. politics in the in not-too-distant future.
1: I certainly hope so. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's Thanks Peter Milibar, Todd Stone. We'll take a quick break. We're caught up to the news on the other side. Premier John Horgan.
0: 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Welcome back to a special two-hour edition of Inside Politics. Thank you for listening. Uh, Kicking it off in high gear, hour number two. Welcome to the show from the Premier of this province, John Horgan. Good morning, John.
8: Good morning, Shane. Do I, do I sing for he's a jolly good fellow, or are we doing that
1: together? <laughs> uh, my dad once told me that I, w- I sing a great tenor if I'd only sing 10 or 12 <laughs> miles away from him. So <laughs> good, good to hear your voice. Thanks yeah. for having me on the show. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm, I'm sad it's going to be uh, the last one at least for a while, so uh, thank you for coming on. Um, John, no let's word. start off with the uh, with the meeting last night. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of media hype about uh, you going in as this uh, lone NDP premier in this sharks pool of conservatives. Uh, you guys seem pretty congenial coming out the other end. So honestly, from you, I mean, how how was those meetings? Were, did you all get along well, or what was the deal?
8: Oh, sure. We, I mean, there's so much that binds us together as Canadians, regardless of our political views. Uh, that when you get together and you've got the opportunity, the privilege to, to lead a province as I do, or Jason Kenney or Scott Moe from Manitoba, Brian Pallister from uh, Manitoba, when you have that opportunity, you, you, you put the pettiness aside or the, or the things that divide you, and you focus on the things that are, that are important. Now, having said that, I, I think your listeners, I, I, I know they uh, understand there's a challenge with respect to my views on the potential consequences of the trans mountain pipeline and and alberta's absolute desire to see that go forward uh, so that was the obvious hook for the media and i have no quarrel with that but uh premier kenny and i met on wednesday evening i was uh late getting in i had an announcement uh, in vancouver on wednesday and then a cabinet meeting so i i couldn't get the early flight i had to come in a bit late but the premier graciously uh found time and the two of us sat down face to face and had a had a bite to eat and talked about the the agenda for the following day and talked candidly about uh, what he would like to see uh, with respect to Kinder Morgan or me, Trans Mountain. And I laid out uh, my concerns about ocean protection, which has been my primary issue from the get-go. And uh, he uh, understood that my views were going to be taken to Ottawa. Uh, the federal government's responsible for the ocean protection plan. I think they need to beef it up, and I'll be making that case in the days and weeks ahead.
1: After the Premier's meeting, you sat down and addressed reporters. Uh, in there, you both said, hey, the federal government has a jurisdiction to build the pipeline, but also you made a case for a shared jurisdiction, hence the court challenge. How do you square that circle?
8: Well, it, 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 quite simply, uh, and there are uh, cases all the time in uh, provincial courts, and uh, eventually they make their way to the Supreme Court when it comes to dealing with jurisdictions in our uh, federal system. Uh, We have equal orders of government, federal and provincial. It's not a hierarchy. The Constitution lays out what the uh, federal government is responsible for and what the provincial governments are responsible for. uh, But on the area of shared jurisdiction or jurisdiction that's not been settled by case law, such as the environment, which was not uh, a high priority for John A. MacDonald and the founding uh, members of the uh, Charlottetown Convention way back in the... uh, 1860s, uh, those issues are are resolved by making the argument to the court. And I suggested over a year ago, and this is where Premier Kenney and I had uh, a violent agreement, we both said, that uh, I, I asked the former Premier of Alberta and the Prime Minister uh, in 2018, let's go straight to the Supreme Court and address this issue, get it off the table. Uh, of course, uh, Premier Notley didn't have the ability to move it to the Supreme Court, but the Prime Minister did, and he, he chose not to. So uh, we're on that path now. Uh, I was not asked to withdraw the case by Alberta. Uh, I did. Uh, we did talk about Bill 12, uh, which is in, in court today. The Bill 12 being the Alberta legislation that was effectively called the turn off the taps law. Uh, I believe that's unconstitutional. So do a, a number of other scholars. And we'll see what the courts say today on that.
1: Uh, with respect to your position on Trans Mountain, a simple question to you, Premier. Do you think it can be stopped or no?
8: Well, I I, I believe that uh, the decision that was made, the second uh, approval uh, by the federal government, was done with more clarity than the first in as much as the National Energy Board did not consider any marine impacts. And that's strange to me when all of the evidence shows that the singular purpose for the Trans Mountain Pipeline is not to provide uh, more uh, gasoline, uh, refined oil, to, uh, British Columbians so that they can see gas prices go down it's to send diluted bitumen uh, to the coast and then immediately on to a tanker to another market and so uh, I would think that the federal government responsible for uh, our oceans and our marine environment or pardon me our marine economy uh, would uh, would have done that review uh, right off the bat they didn't and, and the courts told them to go back and take a look at the potential consequences on the oceans uh, and also to ensure that their uh, consultation and accommodation with indigenous peoples was adequate based on case law. So they went back and they made a second decision, and I acknowledge, I have acknowledged from the beginning that the federal government has the rights uh, on uh, projects that tr- cr- cross provincial boundaries uh, to uh, rule on those. But I also believe that once the the pipeline is constructed, that British Columbia should have some say, in uh, uh, regulating that product so whatever it may be uh, to protect uh, BC interests and that that's the case we're making to the Supreme
1: Court. you have a history that is uh, steeped in, in the forest industry uh, you're now the premier of this province. Uh, I have not seen, to my memory, a spate of bad news like we have seen in the last two to four weeks. Uh, Just last night, uh, two more pulp mills, this time in Prince George, curtailed by Canfor. Uh, I know I talked to Carol James and she said, listen, there's no new pots of money coming, Reference maybe looking to Ottawa, uh, reference back to the budget dollars tabled in February. Uh, But as the bad news mounts, John, do you guys need to do something here or no?
8: Well, one of the things we talked about at the Western Premier's Conference uh, was uh, the federal response to the softwood lumber dispute with the United States. That goes back, as you know, several years, uh, but we, we put in the final communique uh, language that basically said that the federal government needs to uh, reinvigorate uh, the transition programs that they announced at the beginning of the softwood uh, litigation piece, because we're now in In tribunals, and the the political arguments are no longer valid. There's there's, uh, legal and and administrative arguments that are being made, and and we always win. I mean, every time the Americans bring these things forward, we win. But uh, the programs that were announced in 2017, uh, in light of the curtailments uh, that have been announced by the interior industry, uh, clearly are inadequate, and and the Western premiers agreed with me on that, and, and that's part of the communique. Uh, We are going to be working uh, as hard as we can with communities. We set up tables uh, back in April uh, to do a timber supply review area by area, working with uh, senior officials uh, like CEOs of where possible of forest companies, uh, senior officials in government, uh, labor and indigenous communities, as well as community leaders, mayors and councils, to take a look at how we go forward. Everyone in the industry knows, Shane, and you've been covering this for a long, long time, uh, we have seen uh, a significant fall down in annual allowable cut because of the pine beetle, because of successive fire seasons. I've seen some 2 million hectares of forest taken out of the fiber basket. So these challenges that are being coming to roost now are not uh, the making of uh, any particular policy, any particular government. They have Uh, developed over many decades and now it it falls to those of us here today to deal with it and and so we're uh, trying to drive the industry to a a higher value lower volume approach to forestry which will create and keep more jobs and we also had legislation in the spring to make sure that the public interest was front and center as as these curtailments uh, are announced we didn't want uh, private companies to take public lands and trade them back and forth in the interest of their shareholders. Uh, As we look at the forest industry going forward, we need to do that with a view to investment, for sure, but also where are the jobs going to be, Uh, what is the public interest. At the end of the day, the vast majority of forest activity is on public land. The forests belong to the people of BC, and and, and we're going to work hard uh, with every stakeholder to see what we can do in the weeks ahead, but the curtailments are... Uh, oftentimes uh, market-driven. Uh, I think the CEOs will acknowledge that. No one's pointing fingers at this point, and I think that's good news for success in the long term.
1: Are you going to be visiting impacted communities, Premier? And if so, are you bringing any news or help along with you?
8: Well, I, uh, I visit communities all the time, Shane, as you know, and uh, we talk about these issues uh, uh, when appropriate. Uh, I'm going to be working this summer uh, spreading out across the province. We've had, uh, as you know, the mountain caribou, Issues in the peace country, we've been working hard on that. Uh, these are all, I guess you call it cumulative impacts. You've got the fires, you've got the pine beetle, you've got uh, species at risk legislation at the federal level, and you've got a uh, an industry that has been driven by volume, cutting as fast as they can. In the case of uh, mountain pine beetle wood, you wanted to cut as fast as you can so that the mar- uh, the, the fiber was still merchantable and you could still get a, find a market for it. But now that the pine beetle wood is gone, we have to, have to take stock of, of how we proceed uh, with respect to wood waste and that, how that impacts the, the pulp sector. On the coast, we put in place a coastal revitalization strategy to reduce the number of logs that can be exported so that those logs will stay in British Columbia to keep jobs here. Uh, but it's multifaceted. Minister Donaldson's working as hard as he can on this, as is uh, Minister uh Uh, James at finance. We're going to do the best we can to support people. That's what they expect, and that's our obligation.
1: Victoria police are making cutbacks. The employer health tax is is getting to blame, and uh, certainly municipalities and and lists of other people are saying, hey, listen, this is a pretty serious economic sideswipe. Uh, Do you have concerns with uh, this impact of the tax? And if so, uh, what, if anything, are you willing to do about it?
8: Well, I've got to work hard to resist uh, saying that the city of Victoria makes expenditures on a whole bunch of things mm-hmm. that uh, that are... Uh, your, your chuckle answers my question, Sh- uh, Shane. I won't go any further. Mm-hmm. I'm quite happy to have the city of Victoria blame the province for the management of their budgets. Uh, but look, we, we have eliminated medical services premiums for citizens in British Columbia, the largest uh, single tax cut in B.C. history for the middle class, and we've, we've uh, shifted to uh, a, a, a employer health tax, which is similar to jurisdictions right across the country. That's We were the last Last province to have a tax, a flat tax on citizens, and calling it a health tax when it went straight into general revenue. So we're we're putting in place a new regime that's consistent with other provinces. It's a low rate. There's a high bar for uh, uh, for exemptions for small businesses, uh, and we believe it's fair and appropriate. Uh, the The MSP will be eliminated in January, and the federal, or pardon me, the municipal governments that have been adversely affected in a very modest way. Uh, I mean, I don't believe that they were making budget cuts based on the employer health tax. I think that's just an opportunity to, to, to cast blame
1: on someone else. Alright, uh, on the cannabis side, uh, just glacial pace of license approvals, yeah, uh, yeah. I've, I'm talking to people in my community, John, and I get we don't want organized crime and they're understood, uh, but I'm talking legitimate business people in this community who are sitting on leases and other expenditures for six, seven, eight months. They're approaching a financially unfeasible position uh, and still nothing on their cannabis license approval. Uh, with respect to that, do you think something needs to change here? Do you, are you concerned if legitimate business people are going to throw in the towel? What's your read?
8: Well, I am concerned, and, and uh, we had, uh, I thought we had adequate time to get this up and running. Clearly, the system's not moving at the pace that the private sector needs. When you're making, uh, as you, you've laid it out very, very ably, uh, Shane, uh, investors are saying, yeah, I'd like to get into this business, whether they were in it before or not. Uh, they make uh, make decisions on uh, leases, on equipment, on staffing. How do you keep staff if you can't open your doors? Uh, uh, so, I, I'm Mike Farmerith, the minister who's responsible for this, is as frustrated as I am, and and the businesses across the province. Uh, we're working as hard as we can to get these this uh, uh, this log jam sorted out to keep going with the the forestry metaphor here, and uh, I'm confident that we'll see some positives uh, in the not too distant future. But it's not just the, the private sector; we're having difficulty getting uh, uh, public stores open, and and uh, so it it there's clearly a. A glitch in the system. Mike's aware of that, and and he's working
1: hard to correct it. All right, Premier, it's it's uh, it's been a pleasure today, and it's certainly been a pleasure in the past. Thank you so much for coming on, and and thank you so much for all the conversations and the time and the and the making yourself available to me over the years.
8: Well, thank you, uh, Shane. You've always been uh, a hard-hitting uh, in the NL style. In the in the NL style, you've always uh, you don't hold any punches, but you're a solid guy. You respect the work of uh, elected officials of all political stripes. Uh, so that's why it's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, it's going to be a great loss for the media in British Columbia broadly. But I know you've got an exciting time ahead uh, in Scandinavia. So uh, all the best to you. And if I if I need a place to sleep in uh, in Denmark, I uh-huh. hope you'll uh, you'll let me in.
1: I will I will do that for the small price of an exclusive interview. <laughs> okay, man. <laughs> you take it easy. Use two, John. Thanks so much again. Uh, that's, the that's that's Premier John Horgan. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break here on a special two-hour inside politics. BC Liberals leader Andrew Wilkinson joins us next.
0: Local news now, Radio NL, 610 AM and radionl.com. For Kamloops Computer Centre, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning, thank you for tuning in. Special two-hour edition of Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone now. The official, uh, the leader of the official opposition, the BC Liberals leader, Andrew Wilkinson. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, how are you? I'm well, You?
9: Good, and you forgot to mention I'm
1: from Kamloops. How many times do I tell you? You, You're going to have to give me a list of all the places you've lived one day.
9: (laughs) Well, I grew up in Kamloops. It was a fantastic place to be a kid. (laughs) So... Let's talk about that instead of politics.
1: Yeah, drink. Uh, Andrew, thanks for coming on. really appreciate this. I don't know if you listened in on what the Premier had to say. Uh, I know you've expressed some concerns around the employer health tax and certainly uh, being highlighted again uh, by what's going on in Victoria with cuts to the police department. The Premier, if you didn't hear, uh, said, listen, uh, much ado about nothing. These are choices made by the City Hall there, Uh, not so much about what the province, although he's fine if City Hall wants to blame him for their problems. Uh, Your take on that?
9: Well, the Premier seems to forget that all taxes cost people money sooner or later. It doesn't fall out of the sky. It's not some something over the horizon where a pot of money is drained into government coffers. Employer's health tax is paid by employers, including places like UBC, which pays $17 million a year in employer's health tax. And these things have to get paid for by somebody. So at university campuses, that means fewer staff, fewer courses, and fewer programs and clearly in victoria it means fewer police services because somebody's got to pay it at the end of the day and when these taxes get loaded onto municipalities they flow through to either reduce services or higher property taxes those are the only two channels and it, the sad thing about the ndp government of victoria is they seem to think that there are these endless pots of money that they can just pick out of people's pockets they don't realize that it's a human being who pays them at the end of the day. There's no such thing as a tax that's not eventually paid by a person, and that's you
1: and me. And the example of that would be the MSP, which is much hated and much maligned tax as well, that, that people in this province did not like uh, replaced by the employer health tax. If you don't like the EHT, and I don't believe you're willing to run on returning to the MSP, what do you do?
9: Well, this is the challenge that the NDP have piled on 19 new taxes or increased taxes. Small businesses in particular are getting just hammered with these different taxes, including rapid increases in property taxes. So we've started to say, look, we're going to have to have a complete overview of small business taxation, of property taxation. We have said we'll return the carbon tax to being revenue neutral, which the NDP got rid of. We've said we'll get rid of their speculation tax. It has nothing to do with speculation. And then after that, we're going to have to have a thorough overview once we see how much damage the NDP have done. Because this is flowing through to an awful lot of individuals that are starting to say, I just can't do this anymore. You know, I visited one of the last tile manufacturers in North America in Burnaby. Wonderful business, employs 130 people. Their taxes have gone up so much, they say they might just shut the doors and lay everybody off.
1: But what I didn't hear in there, Andrew, is what you would do. If it's not MSP, not EHT, what is it?
9: Well, this is a phenomenon that flows through to businesses primarily and to employers like municipalities, universities. We're going to have to have an overview of that. I cannot say today we will abolish the employer's health tax because the NDP have raised the cost of government so much, it's irresponsible to say we're just going to abolish all of their 19 taxes. We're going to have to have an overview of what they've done and how much cost they run up before we can come up with a revised taxation plan. But we guarantee one thing. You will pay less in tax. That also goes to things like ICBC, where the NDP have said, no, 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 they know how to run the world. It's in their control. They'll take care of it. You don't need to know about it. It's a unique model in the world. Nobody else uses the ICBC model. And it's time for the voters and the people of British Columbia to have a choice. You deserve a choice in auto insurance.
1: There's going to be a big ICBC change in September. They're going to turn the whole thing upside down, ensure the driver, not the car, as you're aware. Um, I don't know if you've used it or not, but the ICBC does have a tool online where you can run through your situation, get a sense of what under this new system what it would cost you. I did it. Uh, it says for basic for me, I pay 750 for basic now. Uh, it would cost me 825 under the new system according to this tool. Uh, that's not saving me much money. I don't know what the results are for you or anyone else, but uh, do you have concerns there?
9: Well, absolutely. That's a 10% increase. Inflation's running about 1.5%. How much longer can we stand taxes going up at a rapid rate, way above inflation? So let's get a handle on this. Let's reduce the taxes I've talked about, including the making carbon tax revenue neutral so you don't get gouged in carbon tax. You'll actually have reductions in other taxes. And let's get ICBC in a place where you actually have a choice, where you're not just force-fed the state-run monopoly.
1: Last question, uh, line, line of questioning on cannabis. Uh, the Premier admitted to me he's concerned uh, on the, the glacial pace of licensing. Um, we're all aware of what's going on here. We, nobody wants organized crime in the industry, Andrew. Okay, let's make every effort not to do that. But I'm also hearing more and more, including legitimate business owners here in Kamloops, who've been sitting on an application for six For seven, for eight months, they've got a place, they've got leases, they're paying out the entire time, and to date, Andrew, still no, yes, no, or maybe so from the province. In Kamloops, 17 cannabis operations have been approved. We have two that are open. Uh, Concern there?
9: Well, you're way ahead of the rest of the province. Remember, Catalyst is one of the first uh, legal uh, sales outlets to open in the province. There are about a handful of others around the province to serve 5 million people. This is a legal product whether you like it or not. There's a well-established black market for distribution. The whole idea was to make the black market go away. And if we have the black market operating in parallel to this extremely limited and rationed a uh, legitimate market guess what the black market's gonna continue they don't have to pay leases they don't have to pay taxes they don't have to make look out for their employees so the ndp are basically creating through delay a wide open market for these black market channels to keep going it's just sad why can't they get on with it? There's a municipal element in this, but there are many municipalities where they've already established that it's okay to operate in a particular location. They're waiting for provincial licensing. We're also starting to see a bit of. Uh, Uh, frustration on the part of aboriginal indigenous operators who want to operate in their own way on their own properties and the provinces just jerking them around and so at some point they're going to probably be inclined to say well then forget it we're going to do what we want to and you can prosecute us if you feel like it
1: yeah it's an untenable situation andrew uh, i've always appreciated the time over the years thanks for making time today on this last show uh and it's it's really honestly been a pleasure
9: well, i got to say, Shane, and let's take an extra 30 seconds to talk about you. <laughs> You've done an extraordinary job of focusing crisply on the highlights of politics. The interviews are always fair. I'm not scared of you, but I'm certainly respectful. you going on, Woodford, Andrew. Oh, I better get ready. I better uh, prepare my issues because Shane doesn't take nonsense. You do your job very well. We respect you. We've enjoyed the time with you. And I wish you all the very best in your future.
1: Yeah, thank you, sir. And hopefully this is a pause, not a goodbye.
9: Well, we'll hope to see you again, because you're good stuff.
1: All right, Andrew. Always appreciate it. Thank you again, sir. Bye-bye. That's the leader of the B.C. Liberals, the leader of the official opposition, Andrew Wilkinson. We'll take a quick break. In studio next, the president of Trans Mountain, Ian Anderson.
0: Radio NL. NL RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning. Thank you for listening. Special two-hour edition of Inside Politics. Uh, the last one for me. Real pleasure to be joined in studio this morning by the President and the CEO of Trans Mountain, Ian Anderson. Ian, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you last feeling day? these days? Yeah, last day. For you, not me. Yeah. <laughs> Cancel the breaking news. <laughs> I'm just getting started. Yeah. How are you feeling about things?
10: Good? I, good. Good. It's It's been a Obviously, a lot's gone on the last couple of weeks, yeah. but there were you know important steps that we had to get through, yeah. uh, and and nothing's for sure until you until it's for sure. And yeah. decision of the federal government, I think, was uh, was a very important step. And then the National Energy Board gave us our certificate last week, and they gave us a bit of a process forward uh, that will kind of direct our activities for the next few weeks. But no, it was a very very good week. Uh, last time I heard from you, which was in the press conference responding
1: to the federal government decision, uh, it was uh, if everything lines up, shovels in the ground in September with the hopeful of a 2022 completion. Uh, but again, there was some clarity you were still looking for there uh, with, you know, been about a week, two weeks now. Uh, has that timeline solidified
10: itself? I think it, it is working in that direction. I think the NEB's process that they laid out for us last week on Friday. Uh, serves well into that schedule, but again, we're going to have to wait for the certainty of that process to conclude sometime in July or August. And and I, I think it's I think it's the right schedule. Yeah. That's the one we're working towards anyway. Okay. It would have shovels in the ground <clears throat> um, in uh, early to mid September in 2022 in service. Uh, The Coldwater
1: Indian Band, which I know has been something you've been working on for a long time now, they have an issue around an aquifer uh, that they're very concerned about. Uh, I know you mentioned that uh, you were looking at possibly rerouting there. Has that been finalized? Is that what you're going to do? Or is that kind of solution still sort of up in the air somewhere? Yeah, it
10: hasn't been finalized. Um, We've started doing the work with the band to understand the aquifer uh, dimensions, depth, recharge, etc. Yeah. Uh, it's in proximity to our approved right-of-way corridor through, through, um, through the territory. So we started that work, which is important work to do. That'll help inform both the band and us on, on kind of the aquifer uh, situation. But um, they have, uh, you know, um, advocated for some time yeah. that we look at an alternative. And I've committed to the chief and council that we'll look at that alternative. So we're going to look at alternatives with them. I want to find a solution that's good for them and good for us. Uh, and I've committed to the Chief that we'll do that, and we'll undertake that work as as soon as we possibly can to look at all terms through that valley. If you can address the aquifer and whatever solution
1: you come up with, do you think that that would you know the band will be satisfied with that? They have been I mean, more or less opposed, but their opposition has been based on this one concern. So if you can address that, does it solve that
10: problem? I, I hope so. I mean, I think their 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 firmly stated position is, and I respect it entirely the protection of their water and, and how important the aquifer is and water is to the community, and that's my that's my charge as well. So yeah. uh, I'm hopeful if we can find a route that serves both of our needs that that will, you know, bring us closer together and, and we can carry on the relationship from there.
1: First Nations, I know you're aware there's three different groups looking to buy into the pipeline. As part of the federal government approval, there was a re-engagement process with First mm-hmm. Nations up and down the line. Uh, to your credit, you have spent a significant amount of time getting to know these communities uh, to a great degree. Mm-hmm. As you as we begin a re-engagement process, uh, how do you see that rolling out? And do you think it, uh, there is a handful of First Nations who are mostly in the lower mainland or are really opposed to this thing? Do you think the process will allow them to kind of I don't know, transition how they think about it or no?
10: I think for some, yes. And I think for others, they've still got their their grievances with Canada that they still want you know full and complete airing of and, and resolution of. Yeah. Some of that will take some time that will extend beyond the work we're doing right here. But I think the work we're doing here has served an important uh, catalyst for some of those conversations that maybe hadn't been had before between some of the communities along the right-of-way and Canada. I think when Canada came to the table, as they did in the last several months, in a very meaningful way and a very committed way, it opened the door for conversations with the Crown between the communities that hadn't happened. So I'm hopeful that this is, has 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 provided opportunity for for those conversations to happen in a more meaningful way for all parties. Um, you know, there are there are all groups along the corridor have been by the minister. You know, made aware of a of a process he's going to run to establish an economic interest from indigenous communities in the asset. Yeah, That'll take some time to solve, but... Um yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a great undertaking, and I support it wholeheartedly. One of the arguments, that I
1: thought was interesting, because uh, some of the First Nations that are opposed, of course, are based on environmental concerns, uh, traditional land rights, title, all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. I was talking to some of the, the prominent First Nations people up here, thought, and they had a different take on it. They said, well, listen, if we buy into this thing, as an owner, we have control over that. We have a say and a seat at the table in environments and all of these issues. You're nodding, so I, I guess you concur
10: with well, that. Absolutely. I'm, I mean, that's what... Uh, Chief Michael Labordi has said for some time, his interest is not only the economic interest in the asset, but the the participation and 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 the assistance with the governance and the oversight of the asset and how it's run and and how it's operated and how it affects communities. And I think that is a uh, a wonderful objective, and it would come along with ownership. Uh, you know, there'd be representation on a board and that kind of thing. And I think that's 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 uh, that that was a would be a very 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 nice outcome.
1: Do you think you're going to be the last guy to to kind of captain through an oil pipeline in this country?
10: I don't know. I've been asked that question a couple of different times in a couple of different ways, and um, uh, I think the the challenges of of building pipelines uh, in in not just in Canada but North America we're seeing challenges Enbridge is facing in Michigan and and you know TC Energy is faced in in on the, on their Keystone XL pipeline. It's it's a tough road, uh, a hoe, and and there's there's lots of challenges. I mean, if I look at line three of Enbridge and Keystone XL and ourselves, uh, if all three of those come on stream in the next few years, that probably is is good for the industry. You know, through the middle of the next decade, anyway. Um, is there more required after that? I you know, Energy East is a is, is a wonderful national. Um, concept, I think, is it would be a great pipeline to have built someday. Yeah. But, you know, you've seen us try and go through two provinces. Well, that goes through five or six. Uh, <laughs> so, it's uh, it's a challenge. i a not big sure one we'll the last. Quebec, which is, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure we'll be the last, but uh, I certainly think we'll be one of the most important, given the tidewater access we'll give.
1: Well, how difficult, I mean, you've been very restrained, and, I, and I'm not, this isn't a political question, but um, you have done years worth of work on this. How how challenging and frustrating has it been navigating all of this stuff over the year, And not just the regulatory, but going through changing processes, and then, you know, the firestorm opposition, uh, the environmental movement, and then never mind the politics and the court battles. Uh, has there been days when you just went home and it's, God, I got to do something else with my life?
10: I don't think I've, I've ever said I've got to do something else, but there certainly have been days that have been more or less, you know, encouraging or discouraging. In fact, I'm I'm just right now ending a, a bit of a road trip where I've met with all my employees in Calgary, Edmonton, Burnaby, and and here this morning in Kamloops, and that's one of the things we've talked about is, is is how did we get to where we are, and how did that kind of humble determination that we've that we've stuck with over the last five, six, seven years. I mean, you know, Kinder Morgan a year ago. Um, was was walking away. I mean, the, the risks were intolerable to that investor and they were prepared to leave mm. and they gave Canada a chance to acquire it if they wanted to see it built and, and I think that was uh, the right solution. But it's been a roller coaster. Uh, we found ourselves in the nexus of lots of difficult conversations and, and I, we, we've tried to roll with it as best we can, stay yeah. on the high road, do our job right and uh, hopefully it'll come to fruition. One of the issues uh, has
1: been in the meantime and in between time is the capacity issue out of the oil sands in Alberta. We simply don't have the ability to, we've we've maxed out our transportation of bitumen and oil and refined gas and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're seeing almost every time Stats can checks, we're seeing uh, oil by rail records mm-hmm. falling. Um, should the pipeline get built and come online in 2022? Uh, from your experience, as far as increasing capacity, does it address the oil by rail pipeline issue, or is capacity to such a point in the oil sands you just got to use
10: every avenue to get it to where it's going? I think. I mean, you're right. Oil by rail has increased significantly over the last three to five years, as as the pipes have filled up and they're they're all full. There's no new capacity available for several years. I mean, it takes the original in-service date for my pipeline was 2017 <laughs> uh, when we first conceived late. it. We're a little <laughs> late, uh, but uh, hopefully not absent. And and so, um, yeah, it's, it's going to continue to be part of the fabric of the transportation network for a few years yet. And I don't see it going away because it's provided a flexibility niche for some of the producers to access markets. And there's always disruptions in the supply, you know, um, Logistics that that require oil to go to different markets at different times and oil provides some flexibility that pipelines don't Yeah, Uh, it's it's two three times the cost depending upon the market you're trying to access so that's the first barrel to come off You know the the first new barrel in a pipeline is going to come off of rail for sure so you would see a drop I think in rail uh, fairly fairly dramatically and quickly as these new pipes come on But I don't think it goes away forever because infrastructure has been built You know, rail sidings have been built, cars have been acquired. It'll stay part of the fabric of the transportation, but not as much, hopefully, as as pipes come on. I believe there's
1: four sections where the routing hasn't been firmed up, cold water potentially being one of them. Uh, There's at least three other sections. So uh, of those three sections, what's the most concerning for you as
10: far as uh, the complexities involved and then tackling how to figure that out? Well, we're waiting on a route. Uh, it, when we were stood down last August, we were in the process of waiting for the, what's called the, the Coquihalla spread, the, the yeah. 5B, we call it. We're waiting for that decision. We still haven't had the, the route hearing on spread 6, which is through the Fraser Valley, into into Langley. Um, we've got to solve the cold water uh, route. Um, and uh, we anticipate solving all the route, you know, determinations as we go. Uh, we're good for everything from Edmonton down through Kamloops and we'll be hopefully getting to work on virtually all those, those, those spreads, uh, this fall. We'll probably start in Alberta, start in Edmonton, uh, do some work here in Kamloops, you know, coming off the, uh, off the hill down, uh, you know, north of the airport and to our terminal, we'll, that work will start this fall. It's about seven kilometers of work. Yeah. So you'll start seeing people on the ground and, and, um, uh, workers being hired, and and hopefully we can hire, you know, a half to a third of our workforce rate right from the Kamloops area. Hopefully, some of those mill workers that you know have, have been laid off, you know, in yeah. the area. I was going ask um, have some skills that are you know interchangeable that we can we can bring on the crews. Uh, we got a great contractor in this area, Suresh Murphy, who wants to maximize you know local content and indigenous content. Uh,
1: to that end, and I was going to ask you about the solid worker thing, because it's been a devastating to Vavenby Clearwater, which uh, I talked to the mayor there and said, "Hey, listen, maybe the Trans Mountain buys us a year or two of, of in-between time to get these guys transitioned to something else. The skill set seems to be sort of similar. Uh, other communities along the pipeline route uh, were relying heavily on the tax revenue from the pipeline. So mm-hmm. when it comes to actually getting workers on the job and getting some of those dollars flowing to the communities you're going through, what's the
10: timeline there? I think you'll start seeing it happen this September, October. Yeah, um, subcontracts will be let. The general contractors are ready to go. Um, we'll have five, six hundred workers uh, right here in Kamloops, uh, staying in hotels, motels, RV parks, uh, to a large extent. There's not a camp in in Kamloops, so they're going to be, you know, spending their money in businesses in Kamloops. And like I said, they're going to be here for a year or two, uh, working on 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 the spread right here. And I'm I'm really hopeful some of the some of the regional hiring can come from some of those those mill workers that have you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, been laid off. Yeah. Uh, Ian, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. You and I have talked
1: many times over the years, and uh, to your credit, uh, you've tackled an incredibly difficult and uh, fiery task. And uh, I've always appreciated the fact that uh, no matter when I made the request or uh, in a press scrum or in this situation now, you've, you've never shied away from sitting there uh, and being asked the tough questions. And I sure really that. appreciated that.
10: Appreciate that, Shane, and good luck with your with your future
1: endeavors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. Enjoy a bit of Europe. Yeah. Thanks. Excited and terrified. Uh, that's you. Ian Anderson, president, CEO of the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline, as you heard there, hoping to get work uh, get going by September. We'll take a quick break on the other side. We're going green with Andrew Weaver.
0: Local news now, Radio NL, 610 AM and radionl.com. For Loops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Welcome back. Well, the last segment on the last show. A uh, real pleasure to, to finish it off with the leader of the B.C. Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Good morning, Andrew. How are you?
11: Good morning. Very well. And I'm sorry it's your last show.
1: I know. I'm, I'm actually getting a little emotional as we speak. It's... Uh, Tough decision for me. Uh, you and I talked about that when I was in Victoria, a bit. Yeah, but uh, yeah. you know, not an easy decision. But at the same time, it's uh, it's a pretty good opportunity and sort of an exciting jump out of the comfort bubble. So, Yeah, it'll be uh, well all the best with your future endeavors. Uh, Ian Anderson was just on, Andrew, uh, talking about uh, getting shovels in the ground in Trans Mountain in September, uh, hopefully getting it completed in 2022. He's feeling really confident uh, that he's a go. Uh, can the pipeline be stopped?
11: I'm I'm not uh, as confident. Uh, you know, it's I don't know. Uh, it's pretty clear that the opinions are varied on this particular issue. I know that uh, when we talk about what's in the pipeline, that's the focus of the government's uh, test case right now. Uh, the government believes, and we support them on this, that there is jurisdictional uh, over uh, uh, there is jurisdictional. Uh, it's in BC's jurisdiction to regulate that which is in uh, that can affect the environment. Uh, the, the issue of concern, of course, is diluted bitumen, a product that you don't actually use. You've got to refine it uh, uh, at some place. Uh, We're not convinced that the market's even there for uh, the so-called diluted bitumen that is going to be... I mean, we know that this year, there's only been one tanker leave Westbridge Terminal. You know, if there was such a demand for diluted bitumen, then there should have been uh, tankers going. But it's been in decline. The reason why, of course, is the Trans Mountain expansion was designed to p- provide diluted bitumen for the California refiner- for refineries. And with the discovery of shale oil and the, particularly the back-end fields, uh, that market didn't need it. That's why uh, Alberta, I'm sorry, Alaska and uh, heavy crude is also hurting right now. It's just there's no market. So I, I'm not sure why. I know why Kinder Morgan moved on, but I'm not sure why the federal government bought this thing.
1: If there's no market, why are we seeing records falling every time Stats Canada checks on oil by rail? Why are we seeing tons of oil tankers floating? I'm sure there's more than bitumen being there, but I mean, there seems to be a demand, and bitumen won't be the only thing flowing through the pipeline, Andrew.
8: Well,
11: actually, the the expansion is for diluted bitumen. It's for nothing other than diluted bitumen. And the, 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 what, when, it, when the NEB initial case was put forward, it was uh, assumed that there would be a hundred dollars a ton, hundred dollars a barrel price of oil. That's clearly not there, and that there would this be this this big market in California, which isn't there. So I'm I really I'm not convinced that uh, that it, it will get built. I'm not convinced there is a market for diluted bitumen, in particular with the uh, realization that a lot of the marine shipping is moving away from high sulfur products like bunker fuels and towards marine gas it's it's it really is a a foolish economic investment to try to continue to prop up a a particular sector that's not economical Uh, let's move on and and with the new economy that's what our position is
1: well if we're going to go to renewables they don't account for a whole lot of the energy production in this province as as of right now uh so uh if you're not going to do a pipeline you're going to move off the oil sands you're going to do it quick fast in a hurry uh how do you put the spurs to that and get it done overnight
11: Well, we know that uh, if you look at the BC economy right now, it is not an oil and gas economy. It never has, but... 20 years ago, there was good revenues coming from the gas sector. We, we're, we're essentially getting nothing from royalties with gas. In fact, uh, there have been recent years when we've actually given away more money than we actually collected on the, in that sector. So, so where we uh, have the potential to, to lead the world is through innovation. That's when we recognize that uh, we can compete internationally uh, by one of two ways. One is basically giving our resources away and not making any money from it. Or number two is by being smarter, cleaner, more efficient, and in, in extracting our resources, by bringing the tech sector together with the resource sector, we do so in more efficient uh, ways and cleaner ways, so we can export not only the the product, but also the value added and the technology and knowledge associated with that. You know, that's why, uh, you know, we've been pushing for that. Government is listening, and we're quite pleased in that regard.
1: In-going green electric vehicles, which the province has put a big stress point on uh, with that 2040 deadline to sell nothing but EVs in in the province or in the sale of, of internal combustion engines, and yet uh, barely a week ago, Andrew, they put out a release that was yeah. um, uh, mistitled at the very least. It was very deceptive. Essentially, it, it was a release touting what they're doing on the EV side, but if you read the fine print, they're actually cutting the EV subsidy. What's your reaction to that?
11: Well, so, <laughs> I mean, the, this government's not... Uh, not known for its uh, subtle messaging on some issues like this and it, it basically, uh, it was an unforced error to communicate it that, like that. Uh, our view is that what government has done is this. It said okay, we put in a $5,000 uh, uh, um, incentive for electric vehicles, but long before the feds had even made any murmurs of it, then the feds came in and added $5,000. The incentive in British Columbia then became $10,000. That was so successful that in May of this year 15% of all new cars it's remarkable, 15% of all new cars were zero-emitting vehicles. In essence, the money, which was supposed to last years, was sapped up in basically one month because the subsidy went from five thousand to ten thousand. So government said, "Okay, we like this program; it's clearly successful, uh, but let's we we got to get through this budget cycle." So rather than uh, the way it should have been, this, that is, that in light of the fact that the federal government is adding five, we're reducing to three. So you're still getting eight thousand now, but not the ten thousand you were getting. And when we introduced the uh, incentive, it was five thousand. So it's still up from when the BC government did it? I think uh, you know they, they're you know unforced errors in terms of communicating because frankly it's a good news story that this has been successful and eight thousand dollars is still a very very good sub, uh, incentive for purchasing electric vehicles.
1: Andrew, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, one of the one of the perks of this job is I get to know people like yourself and the Premier Andrew Wilkinson, uh, all the MLAs from all three parties. You get to know them as people. Uh, sure, you put tough questions to them, uh, but it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and everybody else, and uh, it's really. Um, it's really hard for me to sign off, but uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, sir.
3: Well, the pleasure is ours,
11: uh, Shane. Loved uh, interviewing with you both at CKW and now at NL, and uh, and good luck with where you're heading off to Denmark.
1: Absolutely, thank you, sir. That's hey, that, that's the leader of the BC Green Party, Andrew Weaver. Uh, thank you for tuning into this show uh, every single Friday. I've really, really appreciated that. Uh, thank you for. I get more feedback on this show than anything else, and I'm going to miss hosting it uh, a lot, but. Uh, Life's a funny thing, and life comes with opportunities. And I've decided to, my wife and I have decided to take one that's going to take us away from Kamloops and this station and this show, uh, and that uh, that breaks my heart. But at the same time, new opportunities out there. So again, thank you so much for listening. News next.
2: Hey, Shane, your pal Richard Zussman from Global BC. We thought. What else could a radio guy want for a going-away present than a piece of audio? So we went and chatted with some of your friends from across British Columbia about the impact that you've left here on the province, especially with your political coverage. You clearly will be missed, but I was surprised as to how quickly people started mocking you. And I'll still hold you to account for that coke stain you got on that new suit of yours for that big meeting you had in Surrey. And the one great regret you must have leaving the province is you didn't fix that coca-hola problem, and we're going to be stuck driving through that snow. Enjoy, and most importantly, thank
8: you, and you will be missed. Uh, Premier John Horgan here. I understand that Woodford's moving on. That's a big loss for NL, a big loss for Kamloops, but boy, the Danes are going to have a pretty good soccer team. Oh, no, wait a minute. He can't play soccer. All the best in Denmark, Uh, Shane. You're a great guy. We're going to miss you here in B.C. Hey, Shane. Keith
3: Baldry from Global TV here. Boy, we're going to miss you. BC politics segment's uh, never going to be the same. I guess we won't even have it anymore. But um, here's my idea. Uh, Zussman and I have been kicking around the idea maybe we do a Danish politics segment. Maybe uh, every week or so we'll dive deep into what's going on in uh, Copenhagen and all those those things. I think there's a TV series about Danish politics. We'll bone up on that and maybe join you on the radio there. But good luck in your new venture. And if you want to come back, give us a call. Hi, I'm Todd Stone, uh, MLA for Kamloops
7: South Thompson. And I'm Peter Millibar, MLA Kamloops North Thompson. Hey, uh, Shane, we wish you all the best. It's been a lot of fun working with you. Uh, Good luck in Finland. (laughs) And Shane, uh, thanks for all you've done in the community, making sure people are well informed uh, of the topics and the issue. Uh, You could be a royal pain in the you-know-what from time to time, but uh, you were always fair and you made sure that people uh, were really well informed.
11: Hey Shane, this is Andrew Weaver, uh, leader of the BC Green Party. Uh, sorry to see that you're uh, heading off to Denmark from CHL Kamloops. Look, uh, I was really excited that we were able to find one sympathetic person to the Greens in Kamloops. Going to have to look hard to now find another one now that you're heading off. So hopefully you can talk to some of your colleagues and maybe we can get a, another another reporter there who's going to go in-depth through our policy. Who's going to ask us the probing question. Who's going to be open-minded. Um, we're going to miss you, uh, really, both at uh, CKNW and, and, and now in Kamloops. Uh, you are a great uh, broadcast journalist here in BC and you will be missed. Have fun and take care.
4: So it's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun and a sometime panelist on Shane's show. And of course, you wish him all the best and know things are going to be great for him. But this is a huge loss to the news media in the province. This is somebody who knows provincial issues uh, in depth with experience and a lot of insight and he's also uniquely positioned, being in Kamloops, to give the perspective from outside uh, urban Vancouver and Victoria. And that's very important because for most of us who still try to cover the province, we don't get out and about and get to travel as much. So Shane's insights were very important. It is a huge loss to the news media in the province that he's leaving us.
9: Andrew Wilkinson here, the leader of the B.C. Liberal Opposition. And i got to say, it's been a pleasure working with Shane Woodford over the years. A smart, capable guy, very crisp, very focused, and he knows the B.C. interior like no one else. Shane's always been telling me he's the real guy from Kamloops, even though I grew up there. And I guess this time I'll have to say, Shane, you're right. You are the voice of the interior, and man, are we going to miss you. All the very best. Hi Shane, it's David
6: Eby, Attorney General for British Columbia. Your journalism was valued in Vancouver. I know it was valued in Kamloops and I'm sure it'll be valued in Denmark too. Uh, we're going to miss you. Good luck over there and, uh, and keep doing your important work even though you're overseas.
7: Mike DeYoung here,
2: Shane. Uh, can't believe we're losing you to the mighty NL and uh, the tens, no hundreds of thousands of listeners that are going to, uh, to miss you. Good luck overseas uh, in Legoland. Have a blast. We're going to miss you, bud.
3: Yeah, Mike Farnworth, MLA Port Coquitlam, more importantly, Solicitor General uh, for the province of British Columbia, uh, in charge of police, and uh, I'm really disappointed that uh, Shane is going to be leaving, because I don't know how you're going to be able to replace somebody who has his finger on the pulse of Kamloops like he does. Because I just find it unbelievable that you go into Kamloops, you don't even tell people, and he knows you are there. He has his sources everywhere. And you'll get a a phone call going, oh, I hear you're in town. And I'm like, how did you know that? Well, I have my ways. Uh, And then he wants you to drop in and and talk on the radio. So um, I know this is a great opportunity for him. And I know he's going to enjoy Denmark. But we're going to miss him.
4: Shane, I'll always remember the long night that you spent covering the Langley campaign in 2013, and I made you wait and wait and wait until the Premier had made a comment before I would give you a comment and you could go. So thanks for your patience. You have really deserved to have another exciting chapter of your life. I know that's coming up for you, and I wish you all the best.
6: Hey, it's Rob Shaw at the Vancouver Sun. One thing I'm not going to miss about Shane Woodford is checking my Twitter feed at 10 o'clock at night and seeing some Radio NL scoop that the rest of us have to scramble to match old Shane Woodford talking to every government minister and the Premier more often than us down at the legislature. So won't miss that, but I will miss you, Shane. You did great work covering BC politics. You left a, a real legacy here, and uh, we're all going to miss you, and you're going to miss your show. And you're an excellent reporter. Best of luck to you in Denmark.
2: Well, Shane, people of Kamloops and, in fact, all of British Columbia are going to miss you. Your coverage of particularly political events here in our province has been tremendous. We wish you the very best in Denmark, and we know you're going to stay active on Twitter. So I look forward to uh, a few debates. Across the miles. Cheers,
1: Carol James, Minister of Finance. Shane, I can't believe you're abandoning British Columbia. I can't believe you're leaving all of us behind. You finally had a kid, so you're populating and helping the province. You know, we had the opportunity to be able to raise your family here, and instead you're just saying goodbye,
4: heading off to Europe, jetting away from all of us. Uh, seriously, we are really going to miss you. Your uh, your strong questions. You're uh, always on the
5: cutting edge of stories. Uh, we knew when your voice. Mail was left, that it was an issue that we had to pay
1: attention to and get serious about being able to answer your responses. So uh, we'll miss you, and I hope you'll stay in touch with British Columbia. It's always home for you.
9: Hey, Shane, you didn't
1: always
5: ask easy questions, but you always asked the right questions, and you always knew what your listeners needed to know about. What was it going to affect their daily lives? Not just the horse race and the polls and the insider talk and the gossip, what is going to happen to their jobs and their community and all the things that mattered for their families in the future. You did a great job. You served British Columbians so well. Good luck to you in your next adventure.